from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. I think people are far too willing to accept things that fit into their preconceptions, and that's how the Russian influence campaign operates. So what is the objective of the Russian government's attack on the U.S.? They would be perfectly happy in a world where any Western consumer of information doesn't know whom to trust, doesn't know what sources are credible and what aren't. And there's one thing we need to be absolutely clear about. Russia's attack on the U.S. during the 2016 election using trolls, hackers, and criminals was just the beginning. There'll be other kinds of attacks, and they will be perpetrated in new and more powerful ways. All that and more coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. If you follow the Target USA podcast, you're familiar with our series of reports called The Anatomy of a Russian Attack. For those of you not familiar with it, I highly recommend you check it out. In episodes 83 through 86, we unveiled a nearly year-long investigation into Russia's meddling and attack on the U.S. election in 2016 and American democracy. The expansive series examined everything from the earliest stages of Russia's planning decades ago to tactics to people involved, strategy, up to recent developments in mid to late 2017. Now, on this episode, we continue our investigation by examining what's likely to happen next. Because it's clear, according to U.S. intelligence, Russia has not stopped its attempts to try to destroy the U.S. from within. So we start this episode off with former U.S. Intelligence Community General Counsel Robert Litt with a simple question. What does the U.S. need to be concerned about, in your opinion, when it comes to Russia? Well, um, I, I suppose it's not not specifically with respect to Russia, but I think there needs to be far more attention paid to the integrity of our electoral systems. Uh, and by that, I don't mean the the sort of um, current focus on the question of whether there's voter fraud, but um, how are our systems protected from interference from outside? Um, uh, there doesn't yet appear to be any evidence that that happened in the last election, um, but that but there's certainly plenty of evidence that it could happen. Um, I, so I think that's a, a, a critical thing. I think that people need to have confidence uh, in the integrity of our electoral processes. Second, I think there needs to be a much greater focus throughout society on cybersecurity. Um, it, is, it is far, as you know, um, it is far too easy for uh, uh, malicious actors to hack into a whole variety of systems um, and enable them to do this kind of damage. Uh, and, and third, I think the public sort of needs to educate itself on the kinds of activities that are going on so that, so that voters and citizens can have an ability to sort out what's real and what's not real. 
Well, give us a sense of what they need to know, what some of those activities are that they need to know about. Well, I think you you sort of um, you need to use uh, intellectual reality filters when you read things on the internet, um, and um, you know, assess to yourself, for example, how likely is it that there's a child. Uh, pornography ring being run out of a pizza palace in in northwestern wash in northwest Washington. Um, I think people are far too willing to accept things that fit into their preconceptions, and that's how the Russian influence campaign operates. Um, I, th- I think uh, on cybersecurity, there are a whole variety of resources out there um, uh, through uh, people like DHS and NIST and so on that can tell people uh, what they can do to protect themselves and their institutions from cyber. During your years in the intelligence community, how concerned were your colleagues about what's basically taken place, what we've learned about taking place? Well, I think if I know you've you've spoken over the years to people like Bill Evanina, uh, who's the national uh, the head of the National Counterintelligence and Security um, Center, um, and I think that there has been uh, consistent concern over. Uh, Russian intelligence activities for decades, um, and they've they've certainly only intensified in the last few years. Um, I think that um, people were uh, surprised at the extent of the activities in the last election, um, but it it certainly falls uh, against a background of uh, continued concern about Russian intelligence activities. The Russian diplomatic corps here in Washington has been made up, as I understand it, of some very knowledgeable and wily individuals. Sergei Kislyak, for example, for, for years, and his predecessor, and now Anatoly Antonov uh, here. There are those who believe that these gentlemen really are not diplomats. What they really are are members of the Russian intelligence apparatus. What's your view? Um, I, I guess I wouldn't comment on that. Um, partly because I'm not sure it's appropriate and partly because any anything I have would be based on incomplete knowledge. Then give me your view on what we know about what the objectives of Russian intelligence are here in Washington. Well, um, obviously, one, they have many of the traditional uh, objectives of an intelligence community, which is to find out as much as they can about uh, U.S. plans and intentions and military capabilities, and they have a very active sort of traditional spy operation. But in addition, they appear to be uh, interested in trying to influence U.S. political activities in a way that weakens our nation uh, and uh, uh, therefore, they believe, strengthens them. That was Robert Litt, former general counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. That last reference was not just some hypothetical creation that he threw out there, but a real incident that took place December 4th 2016, when a North Carolina man was arrested after walking into a popular pizza restaurant in Northwest Washington, D.C., carrying an assault rifle. The man told police he had come to the restaurant to self-investigate. A report involving former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton that she was involved with a child sex ring being run out of that restaurant. The whole thing was a complete fabrication that spread on the internet because of a Russian government troll operation. And when we come back, we'll talk with an expert 
on Russian disinformation about why such an outlandish proposition worked in the first place. That's coming up when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. A lie is a powerful tool, but lies that are told on social media can be magnified many times over, and they can take ordinary people and drive them to do extraordinary things. 28-year-old Edgar Madison Welch of Salisbury, North Carolina, jumped into his car and drove to Comet Ping Pong Pizza Restaurant in Northwest Washington, D.C. and discharged his rifle inside of the restaurant because of a fake news story he read suggesting that former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton was running a child's sex ring out of the pizza parlor. It was a lie that spread like wildfire on social media because of a Russian-driven troll operation. And as we continue this episode, we examine the power of a lie in the context of a powerful Russian intelligence operation. We talked about it with Dr. Christopher Paul, a senior social scientist at the RAND Corporation. Lying has always been an issue. And we knew when we, when we grew up, our parents said, if you tell one lie, you're going to tell another one to cover that up. And I'm just wondering if what we're in the middle of here now is a society that embraces lying more so than in the past, or is this just just the way it is in terms of Russian propaganda? Yeah, you're, you're not alone in wondering that. In fact, the president of RAND, Michael Rich, has spoken a number of times on what he calls truth decay. And of course, his his particular interest as the president of RAND, where RAND is an organization that prides itself in objectivity and high quality research and providing true information uh, in an era of, of apparent declining interest in or value placed on the truth, how does that affect us? But, but I think his observation is one that is of concern more generally. And, and I wonder if, uh, if there's going to be some kind of backlash or if we really are moving towards a, a post-truth society. Now, where Russia is concerned and where their propaganda is concerned, one of the things that I found most startling when I first started looking into Russian propaganda is it, its lack of commitment to objective reality, its willingness to, to just say anything, to, to make up information, to make up evidence, etc. Because I, can't, I couldn't see how that would be particularly persuasive, because I grew up on a a model of influence that said that, that credibility is key and that the truth always wins. But I think both our experience with Russia and a closer look at the literature and social psychology suggested that that's, that's not always particularly true. Uh, looking at lots of, of research, experimental research in psychology, humans aren't all that good at adjudicating truth from fiction. Uh, in fact, often humans, we humans are cognitively lazy. We'll look for what's called peripheral cues, little indicators to decide whether or not something is truthful. For example, if we see a, a broadcast that looks like news, that is, has some kind of logo in one corner that says something with the word news in it, looks like a news studio, 
with a, an attractive anchor person sitting at a desk and speaking in, in clear, unaccented English, and maybe there's a running footer at the bottom with headlines trickling by. Just those, those visual cues, even if in fact it isn't a real news organization and it isn't any kind of prestigious or, or award-winning anchor, would, if they say something provided it isn't completely ridiculous like the sky is purple, uh, if it sounds plausible, we'll probably accord that uh, initial, an initial assessment of credibility. And there are other weaknesses in our cognitive processes that, that make lying more effective than we want it to be. Yes, that's fascinating and outstanding work uh, on your part to piece all of that together. Because uh, for many of us who move from day to day in a very breathless scenario or situation, uh, as, as, as is the case with most of us news uh, folks, and certainly as the national security correspondent, uh, you know, days like today are, <laughs> well, you know, you know, this is what we live for, but at the same time, you know, living through days like this are very difficult, and, and a lot of times we find ourselves having to take time to now uh, discern whether or not, now, is this true or not, whereas in the past we didn't have to worry about that. What is the best way to counter what we're seeing from Russia? It's tricky. First, I would say we don't want to become like them. As one of, one of my colleagues reminded me, don't get in a mud fight with a pig. Uh, second, just saying counter-propaganda almost gets you off on the wrong foot. Uh, because countering the propaganda suggests doing something to or about the propaganda itself. Now, when I give advice to folks in government and in defense about trying to deal with propaganda, one of the, one of the things I advise is don't try to counter the propaganda, try to counter the effect. So what are the Russians accomplishing with their propaganda? Is that effect that they're having something that you care about? And if it is something that you care about, what can you do to counter that effect rather than necessarily starting with the propaganda and thinking about the propaganda. I'll give you an example. Imagine that Russian propaganda is undermining confidence in NATO in a Baltic country. Take your pick, say Latvia. Well, as a NATO partner, we should care about that. Okay, so it passes the first test. It's an effect. We care about it. But what do we do about that? Does that necessarily mean that we need to try to prove their propaganda isn't true or try to eliminate those channels from the information environment? Or should we just focus on the effect? And I would argue we should. What, can, what, what kinds of things can we do to bolster confidence in NATO in the country that's, that's being pushed in this way? And that may be exercises, that may be increased NATO presence, that may be our own positive information about the importance of NATO and the importance of different NATO partners in that country. Uh, we can talk about other ways to, to counter propaganda. If you've read my article, you'll recognize that there are a bunch of psychological vulnerabilities that the Russian firehose of falsehood propaganda model exploits. But there is one of the, one of the ones that's most important is the power of being first. Everybody understands that first impressions are important, but it's easy to underestimate just how important first impressions are. In fact, first impressions are so strong, so important, 
that if re issuing retractions or refutations is almost inconsequential. Yet, governments have an obligation when some source says something that isn't true about representatives of that government, you have to set the record straight. So governments, and this often happens with the U.S. Department of State, Russia or some other foreign power or agency makes a false statement, Department of State has to get out there and say, hey, that's not so. Well, I've talked to some of the Department of State representatives that are involved in these kinds of activities and have said, said to them, you know, you realize the, the refutation does almost nothing psychologically. And they say, I know, but we're obligated to, to do that. And I say, I understand that. My advice then is make it a forewarning. Use that as an opportunity to inoculate against future propaganda. So the first part of your utterance is such and such organization, news source, speaker has said this thing about the United States forces, the United States, United States government, and it isn't true. Instead, this is true. And then, after setting the record straight, turn immediately back towards forewarning and say this, this source organization news service often perpetuates falsehoods or misinformation about the United States in, in several topic areas such as this, 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 and we expect to see a continuing stream of disinformation from that source in the future. That, that way, now, now you're first. Now the United States is first in, in calling, the, the, calling that out, pointing out who, who slings falsehoods and putting that, that's the first impression in people's mind. Oh, the next time I hear information from, say, RT, I should be more skeptical of it. That's Dr. Chris Paul, a senior social scientist at the RAND Corporation. But as we look further into the future at what may happen as a result of Russia's activities, Russia's plans, their tools and tactics, it's going to take more than just skepticism to deal with what may be coming. On this program, we rarely talk to journalists unless it's a breaking news situation. But in this case, this is a scenario where a journalist has done an extraordinary job covering, and not just covering, but understanding and demystifying what it is that the Russian intelligence apparatus is up to. His name is Massimo Calabresi, and he works for Time. He wrote a piece called Inside Russia's Social Media War on the U.S., and right off the top, he gave us a thumbnail sketch of what he learned. Well, um, the, the most important thing uh, that we learned there um, was that um, Russia deployed a, a broad uh, and relatively new, innovative um, uh, cyber, cyber propaganda uh, campaign um, in social media as part of its broader influence operation against the 2016 election. As you uh, and your listeners know, uh, the intelligence community concluded that Russia um, had engaged in a broad influence operation against the election, and the primary goals, according to the U.S. intelligence community, were to undermine the uh, confidence of Americans and others in American democracy to hurt uh, candidate Hillary Clinton and ultimately to help uh, Donald Trump. So the, the May article went 
um, into some detail about the new uh, things that Russia uh, was doing in the uh, uh, in the propaganda field in social media and cyberspace more generally. What sense did you get about this was a fairly complicated and sophisticated operation? What sense did you get about when this actually started? When they start? When they actually roll began to roll this thing out? Right. So the first indication, um, according to my sources, that the U.S. intelligence community got that the Russian um, hacking and cyberspace operations were something other than what you would consider traditional intelligence collection, Um, Russia, China, the United States, France, England, Germany, everybody's getting into everybody else's computer systems all the time to try and gather intelligence. The first time that that the U.S. intelligence community saw something that indicated there might be something more going on, that they weren't just collecting, but that they were going to take what the Russians called active measures, a sort of a, that they were going to launch an operation that was designed to sort of affect the outcome of the election or or have some effect in real life uh, rather than just scooping up information was in May of 2016, a year before my article came out, uh, where they um, learned that a Russian um, intelligence officer had uh, bragged uh, that um, his uh, uh, organization, Russian, Russia's military intelligence uh, organization, the GRU, was going to cause chaos in the, uh, uh, in the upcoming election. And Massimo, part of that story, you know, the bragging of the G, of the GRU officer, you talked about the fact that for most Americans or many Americans, you know, this story was 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 pretty much about the election. But you said that there was another story taking shape here uh, in the background, and that was a hundred years of expertise and influence operations being essentially joined up with the new world of social media. And you believe, based on uh, and I suppose that's what this GRU officer was bragging about, them finally feeling like they finally had arrived at the point that they had hoped to get to for many years during the Cold War. Yeah, so this is fascinating. You put your finger on on, on one of the, the sort of the crucial contextual things here. Um, Russia has always been, or at least since the revolution in 1917, obsessed with influence operations, propaganda, the ability to shape um, uh, the political environment, the the geopolitical environment through the manipulation of information. Um, And um, uh, in the Cold War, they did that all the time with, you know, pro, you know, front organizations that would publish newspapers and distribute them in the U.S. They would deploy agent provocateur into groups that they wanted to try and influence. Um, What Russia, and especially Russian President Vladimir Putin, realized early on with the rise of social media was that this was a particularly powerful arena in which to pursue those uh, kinds of operations. It was distributed all over the world. It was largely anonymous, which gave them cover. Uh, And also, most importantly, as people move around in it, they leave traces of what they believe in 
what they click on and how they respond. All of everything you do online is leaving little electronic traces that are collected by companies who want to sell you things. And the Russians realize that they could collect it too. Uh, and they want to sell something. They want to sell a particular kind of information. So what's interesting is that the Russians were very focused on this from 2008 and especially from 2011 on. The United States has always had a different set of priorities in cyberspace. They were much more interested in the kinetic possibilities, the possibilities that you could do something with computers that would have a real tangible effect on equipment in the world. So they developed viruses that could mess with the um, uh, nuclear systems of uh, adversaries like Iran. They um, uh, worried about people attacking the banking system, and there are real vulnerabilities there. But what they didn't worry about was the thing that Russia was so focused on, which was how do we use social media and cyberspace to try and influence uh, people. So the question begs now because of what you've said, and based on your reporting, how much of a surprise was this for U.S. authorities uh, after the election? Well, this is also an important uh, thing. These kinds of operations were not new um, for Russia. Um, What we saw and what I reported on uh, way back uh, a year ago in uh, in September 2016 um, was uh, that Russia had been executing since 2008, certainly since 2011, and especially since 2014, a kind of westward march of election meddling in cyberspace. They'd done it in Ukraine, they'd done it in Western Europe, and they arrived uh, in 2016 in the U.S. So uh, the Europeans, and especially the Eastern Europeans, uh, the countries in the former Soviet bloc had been screaming about this danger. And every time they would meet with American national security officials, they would say, you have to realize what a danger this is, and they're coming for you next. And uh, the intelligence and uh, and other officials would, you know, roll their eyes back in their heads. Oh, my God, I can't believe the polls are at it again about cyber propaganda, or the Estonians are at it again about cyber propaganda. And um, But the fact is that it, it, it wasn't until late in the summer, August, that anybody really, some investigations were started in July after the WikiLeaks uh, uh, dump around the time of the Democratic National Committee, uh, uh, Democratic National Convention. Um, uh, uh, But, um, you know, real momentum in those investigations only really started to kick in late August, September 2016. And, um, the issue now that everybody is so focused on the possibility that the Trump campaign was collaborating with the Russian government in this cyber propaganda operation, among other parts of the influence operation that Russia was running, um, that didn't really uh, get focus in the intelligence community until after Trump won the presidency. And that's a, uh, an interesting um, and, and sort of troubling fact. So considering that they came late to the party, the U.S. authorities came late to this, how much ground uh, do they have to make up, or can they make up enough ground based on your reporting and what you think and know uh, to, to head this off? Another great question. Um, so the first part is, is how do you 
respond? And the second part is, um, uh, can we uh, respond and are we responding? Um, uh, it's a it's a very different kind of threat to address. First off, because it's propaganda, we automatically um, have kind of deep-seated ideological reservations about how to fight it. Um, we're an open society. We believe in um, uh, having public arguments and debates as our mode of determining what's true and what's important. Um, so the idea of the government somehow coming in and adjudicating what's true or even engaging actively in some kind of propaganda battle domestically has always been troubling. And, and certainly many of the reforms that were put in place after the Nixon era uh, in the 70s um, uh, were designed to uh, constrain government's ability to do that. On the other hand, this uh, new uh, kind of operation is very troubling uh, to national security folks and to Americans generally. We don't want someone to have what seems to be for now anyway a, a potentially powerful means of uh, uh, advancing their interests, uh, including messing with the core exercise of our democracy. Um, uh, so we, people rightly are trying to find ways to, to push back on that. Um, it, it is uh, getting attention now on Capitol Hill. People are starting to look for ways to spend money to figure out how to push back. Um, but that's about the stage they're at. They're sort of, what's the right way to do this without um, uh, undermining our our values, um, but with, you know, a, a certain amount of urgency that we have 2018 and 2020 elections coming up. Are there any indications to you what might be coming next from the Russians? I'd say this uh, about that. Um, the most important thing to take away from what happened last year, for Americans to take away from what happened last year, more important, in my view, than even the question of potential collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, which is a crucially important question, right, and, and absolutely needs to be investigated. Um, but even more important than that is the realization that what Russia's goal here is is to weaken the United States and to undermine our uh, confidence in democracy. What they want is for everybody here and around the world, and especially at home in Russia, to believe that the vision of democracy that we have been espousing and advancing around the world for uh, the entirety of our country's existence is in fact unworkable that that it's broken that that you can't have faith in it um and so the most important thing for people to realize is that uh uh that that's what Russia is trying to do that they have succeeded to some degree in 2016 and that um any of our solutions uh need to stay true to the core values, or the Russians are winning, one. And two, uh, there will be other kinds of attacks, um, and they will um, be perpetrated in new 
and more powerful ways. The Russians are already, the stuff that they did in 2016 now is old hat. Uh, I started the May article with an example of a Twitter hack against the Defense Department that targeted 10,000 people there with uh, specially tailored messages um, that allowed uh, the hackers um, to take control of some uh, of the, the Twitter accounts and the devices of these employees of the Defense Department. There will be other new, just as the world of social media is changing, there will be other new uh, ways in which Russia, um, which is very expert in this space, will try to um, use those uh, new media to advance this purpose of undermining our democracy. And so the best thing that people can do is kind of prepare themselves with critical thinking, be skeptical, figure out how to uh, tell the truth from uh, lies and disinformation, and um, do, uh, you know, what they can to uh, avoid furthering the Russian goal of, of undermining um, confidence in, in U.S. democracy. That was Massimo Calabresi of Time. We thank all of our guests, and we thank you for joining us on this episode as we look further into the anatomy of a Russian attack. And we let you know now that there's going to be a lot more on this, especially in the coming days, weeks, and months. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's T-U-S-A Podcast. And if you have any thoughts about programs, send me an email at jgreen, one word, that's the letter J, the color green, at whiskey, tango, Oscar Papa, jgreen, at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Podcast One has crime and mystery with shows like Cold Case Files. Unsure of how his victim was killed, the doctor completes his autopsy with more questions than answers. The Serial Killer Podcast. A little boy, as it turned out, was the kidnapped Billy Gaffney. And crime and sports. He's pulled over in Dallas and found in possession of a crack pipe. Let's just say the lawsuit didn't go anywhere. He didn't win. <laughs> Exclusively on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.